Hi everyone and welcome to Beyond the Grid. My name's Tom Clarkson and first up, I hope you're all keeping safe and well. Now today, I'm delighted to welcome another great guest for you. It's Andrew Green, Technical Director of Racing Point. As we've already learned on this show with the likes of James Allison and Gordon Murray, tech experts are some of the most fascinating F1 people to chat to, and Andrew especially so. Because what he and his team of engineers have achieved in recent seasons is little short of astounding. In 2016 and 17, with the smallest budget on the grid, Force India outperformed many well-heeled opponents to finish fourth in the Constructors' Championship. It was giant killing on the grandest of scales. But that was really the tip of the iceberg for Andrew, who is a true F1 stalwart. He's been involved in the sport for more than 30 years, first with Jordan and with subsequent stints at British American Racing, Jaguar and Red Bull. And he's been at Racing Point, formerly known as Force India, since 2010. He's also worked with some of the most successful drivers of the modern era. He was there at the Silverstone South Circuit when Michael Schumacher drove a Formula One car for the first time. He worked closely with future Ferrari stars Rubens Barrichello and Eddie Irvine, and with Jacques Villeneuve, as well as his current lineup of Checo Perez and Lance Stroll. Andrew is an inspiring leader, which is one of the reasons why Racing Point was able to retain most of its staff when it went into administration two years ago. He's also a wonderful communicator with many great memories to share. So get ready for stories of giant killing, why he can't wait for Formula One's new rules and cost cap, what made the fan favourite Jordan 191 so special, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Andrew, it's lovely to have you on the show. Uh, thank you for your time. How's life, first of all, in this lockdown period? Yeah, life's, yeah, very different. Has been for quite a while. We're looking forward to... Uh, to get him back to work and hopefully start racing again. Hopefully that's the, that's the plan, start racing in July. The question I ask a lot of people is, have you had the chance to learn anything new um, during the lockdown period? Well, every day's a school day at the moment. <laughs> you learned that you, you were right not to pursue a career in teaching. Is that what you've learned? Yeah, yeah. I think our, our schooling has gone into, into uh, special measures. It, it, we're you know, officially on shutdown. We can't be, we can't be working on on the development of the car. Um, we've been in discussions with the FIA and F1 about how we go forward from this. And, the, and I'm sure you've seen in the messages that have come out, we've made lots of changes to the regulations over the next two years. I think they're all in the right direction, trying to limit the expenditure over the next two years because we don't really know what the face of Formula One's going to be when, when, when we come out of this. So I think it's, it's wise to, to try and lock things down. So we've been working on that behind the scenes for quite a few weeks now. Um, I think we're, we're very close to, to agreeing on, uh, on not just technical and sporting, but financial as well. So I think when we come out of this in the, in the next few weeks, it is going to be very different, not, not just the way that we're going to be having to work to, to work around the, the current environment, but to work around the new regulations. So it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be a real challenge. Fascinating to hear what's happening in the next two years. But when you look at your career as a whole, and you've been in Formula One, damn it, for what, 30 years now, yeah. how has the job changed for you in that time? Well, it's the, the, the sport has grown exponentially since I started in back in 91 was, was my first season with uh, Jordan Grand Prix. 
an amazing season with just really just a, a handful of people. And when we look at the the way the sport has grown from where we were, and we started off with three or four people in the drawing office and just a, a handful of people working on the wind tunnel model and, and 20, 30 people on the, working on the cars was, was about it. And to go from, from that to where we, we've got to now with teams of, of thousands, it's, it's just a different formula. It, it, is, it is completely different. I look at the, the formula that we were in back in the 90s and it doesn't even compare to Formula 2, Formula 3 of, of, of current era. So it's monumental from, from where it's come, come from. How much more complex is the job now and how much more marginal are the gains? I mean, the, the complexity is, 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 is huge now. It used to be that uh, we had one person in charge of suspension and that you would, they, would, they would go off racing as well, come back and design a bit of suspension or gearbox and go off to the races and be a, a performance engineer or, or a data engineer in the, in, during the weekends and come back again. And we've gone from that to the the people being specialised in just a single component on a on a suspension system, but not not uh, not even the overall package. So it's the, the 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 change is has been monumental, and the complexity of the components in aerospace territory in, with the with the type of work that we're doing now compared to to where we were back in back in the nineties, where it was just. It was almost garden shed type design and manufacture. Um, so it's a very different formula. And, the, and it's one person now can't really oversee, have the knowledge of every part of the car to oversee it the way that we used to 20, 30 years ago. I mean, that, that was, it was possible for a technical director back in the 90s to, to really understand every part of the car and how it interacts with every other part of the car and that that's impossible now it's absolutely impossible you you have to you have to rely on so many experts in the different areas that we work on on the car now and and you rely on them you 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 have to because you you cannot you you cannot have the understanding that you need in all the areas anymore it's too complex so you have to have good people working with you good people that you trust that's for sure and so you as technical director, given what you've just said, are no longer designing parts, is that fair? Are you more of the sort of conductor of the orchestra now? Yeah, so I haven't, I haven't been designing parts for 20 years now. So, and, and, and the irony is, as, as, you, as you move away from, from the design side into the, into the managing side, um, the parts you draw get smaller and smaller and smaller. And you, end, you, end, you end up just mopping up literally nuts and bolts. Is where is where you end up as as you extract yourself from the design process. Now I, I haven't designed anything now for, for for many years. There's a lot of reviewing of, of designs that goes on now. So we, we take designs assemblies and rev, and review them together on a screen around a desk or, or or in a meeting. So we we go we go the bigger the bigger concepts reviews rather than the the detailed design reviews. So we're looking for we're looking for different directions and global concepts that's really what we what i do from a from a design side so you, you you set targets and and ambitions and directions technical or otherwise and then we have a you know a huge huge bunch of very clever people who who go away and, and come back with with ideas and ways of achieving what we've set out to achieve um, and then it's for us to to review and and pick a path and or pick 
that was always the 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 issue with with a, a limited budget team. You have to pick one path, so you have to you have to take all that information and make very very careful judgments on which way you go. You only have one real opportunity to get it right, um, so you you have to weigh up the the risks versus performance. Always always weighing that up because we're still we're still a very cost efficient team. We still look to be the most efficient. That we can and we hate waste and it's just it's just inbred in us after all, all the years of, of of working with with next to no no money that, that the decisions we make are absolutely critical that we that we make the right decisions um so we we don't have the luxury of having three options and seeing which one's best going all three routes and then picking the best one at the end we have to pick it right at the very beginning and make sure that we, we we've backed the right horse and, and that happens on a daily basis that's those are the sort of decisions that, that that we're taking and we're making that's the sort of technical side that i'm working with so it's like aerospace a lot more people than 30 years ago but are you still looking for the same things in a car is that the irony of all this ultimately yes but our understanding now of what makes a car quick and what the drivers require from a car to be able to drive it quickly has completely changed with with the, with the onset of simulations and simulators a few years ago we were able to start playing with concepts in a virtual world that we were never able to do before so we were able to explore different regions of car performance to understand exactly what they gave us were we, were we chasing the right thing or well, should we be chasing a, a, another area of performance and that opened up huge opportunities to improve performance in areas that we were completely unexpected. We, we didn't, we didn't realise that certain things were so critical to a driver and other things he was completely inert to. And uh, that was a big, big change in the way we, we operate. And that, that happened probably yeah, five, ten years ago and where we, we started to really build up the simulation tools and the simulators and the driver-in-the-loop simulator. And the, the, the driver-in-the-loop was... Uh, was the key. There's no, we have yet to find a virtual model of a driver that's anywhere close to putting a human in the loop. And it was having that human in the loop and being able to do those experiments that you can't do trackside because you, you just don't have the repeatability. If you had the availability, you cannot do, the repeatability is not there because the conditions change with every lap, almost every corner. The, the, the car is, 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 a, is a living entity in, in in a way that it, it changes so so much with, with just ambient conditions ambient you know, winds temperatures the tires are just such an organic part of, of what we're working with that they're never the same two corners in a row so when we add all, all that into the into the equation it, it became really interesting on what we should be looking at and how we should develop a car and not just looking at ultimate we were always work, working in this, this deck. We, we look at downforce as being the, the king for performance, which ultimately it is. But it's how you apply that downforce to the car and where you apply it and where the driver can use it and where he can't use it. And that, that's, that's a big change, big change from where we were. So something you, you hinted on was how budget affects you. And you've worked for big budget teams like BAR, British American Racing, Jaguar, and then, of course, the constraints that you've been under at Force India, etc. Where do you find the greatest job satisfaction? Is it 
choosing the right path in in a small budget team or is it just having so much available to you in a bigger team what's more satisfying without a shadow of a doubt the the most satisfying part is is operating on a on a limited budget and beating people we shouldn't when when we go when when the race is finished on a sunday there are generally two parties who are really happy with the result there's a party that the, the team that's won they're obviously ecstatic and there's the team that's outperformed where they should have been and that's where we are and that's where we have been for for quite a while that's where we take our pleasure is in finishing above teams that we know we shouldn't be beating but we are and that's that gives us the, the greatest pleasure okay so can, let's talk about 2016 and 2017 specifically now I think you had the smallest budget on the on the grid. I remember being told, I was told at the time that there were moments when you couldn't afford to put paper in the printer, yet you still, <laughs> you still finished fourth in the Constructors' Championship. Just how was that possible? I mean, that seems such a silly question, but how was that possible? I mean, it was, there's obviously a set of circumstances as well. We're beating the competition that's put in front of us. And I think at the time, there's a bit of turmoil with a few of the teams, which, which helped. We were still, when we, when we look at the, analyze the numbers, we were still a, a reasonable chunk away from the top three teams. So the top three were, were head and shoulders above everybody else. And nobody really could fill that gap, that big gap between those top three and, and the midfield. So it was a it was a proper scrap in that midfield area where everyone was scrabbling around the same sort of performance, and we had two good drivers, for sure. We had a we had a really strong lineup. We had a reliable car, which is something that we live and breathe by. You know, for, you know, to obviously the old adage, you know, to finish first, first you've got to finish. It's in everything we we do, as far as the design is concerned. And I think we we had a we we still have, and we have because. Because the, the team that we have then is still the team we have now. We have a, a team that, that really gels together. They really want to work together without any egos or, or politics. It was just trying to do the best that we could. And if someone came up with a good idea, it didn't matter where it came from. If we all agreed it was a good idea, we adopted it without trying to, to, to undermine someone who you thought you know, as, and play politics, really, something we work very hard on in the team is to is to minimize the politics and, and get the team gelling together so i think at that point we had a team that and we still do who were really focused we had just been developing the, like i said before the the simulator and the simulator tools we understood a bit more about where where we can generate performance in the car we also the few years before had highlighted that one of the big areas that we needed to work on was tires and tires are a big performance differentiator. So we invested a lot of time and effort. We, we looked at employing the, the best in the world that we knew of at the time it, to enhance our understanding of tires, not just from a, from a modeling perspective, which is hard enough, but trackside as well, to, to make sure that we were optimizing the, the, the four contact patches on the road. And, and we just kept our heads down, tried not to make mistakes, just took one race at a time, and even when things went bad on a Friday or Saturday, we realized that it's still all to play for on a Sunday. And if you have a really well-balanced car that's looking after its tires, you can still get good results on a Sunday regardless. So we always kept that in mind. We, weren't, we were never that down if we underperformed on, on a Saturday, which was quite, it appeared to be quite a regular 
occurrence on the Saturday. We were, we were never quite as performant on the Saturday as we were on the Sunday, always knowing that Sunday was the key day. We, we get the results on Sunday, you score the points on Sunday, you don't score the points on Saturday. And that was, that was the mentality. And, and, I, and I think a, a lot of our competition just tripped over themselves, which helped. And we, we, made, we minimized our mistakes. And I think that was the big part of it. And then throw it forward a year to 2018. And there's one race I wanted to ask you about specifically, Baku and Checo. Sergio Perez gets on the podium, overtakes Sebastian Vettel in the closing laps. I mean, yeah. you guys were staring down the barrel at that moment, weren't you? And um, administration was just around the corner. Just tell me about the emotions that on the pit wall during that race and immediately afterwards. It's, it's difficult to describe, really. Um, again, we're talking about tyre management in that race. And also, we'd identified a while ago that we were very weak in a certain type of corner. The car had been weak in that type of corner for quite a while, and it's taken us a while to develop our way out of it. But at that time, we were very weak in one type of corner, but we were incredibly strong in another type of corner. And it just so happened that Baku was just full of the corners that the car loved. Absolutely full of them. <laughs> so... And then we got Checo, who just loves, he could you know, drive a, a lawnmower around Baku and still get a result. So you combine, you combine those two, and we were always going into Baku with a view of, if we're going to get a result this season, Baku is probably going to be it. So there was a big focus within the team to make sure that we were absolutely fully prepared, and we weren't taking any risks on that weekend in any regard to make sure that we gave ourselves the best possible opportunity on the Sunday. We did it once again, guys, once again, once again. And yes, you need a bit of luck. We, we've seen that before. You've, you've, got to, you've got to survive those opening laps. But once, you, once Checo gets into a, a, a rhythm on the, on the Sunday afternoon, he's one of the best. He's absolutely one of the best. He's, I think he's one of the few drivers who, who really excel on tyre management and be able to read the car, understand what he needs to do with the tyres, for how long he, he needs to hold back, when he can start pushing. Sometimes you have to push the tyres to keep them alive. Um, that was part of the case that we had in, in Baku, that there was a, a graining phase that you had to drive through and you had to maintain temperature in, in one of the axles. But that was all came back from our understanding of tyres and what we needed to do. And we were feeding that information to the drivers throughout the race, what they needed to do. And don't worry about when the tyres do this, they'll come back and do that. So that was all happening. And yeah, and as, as it got closer and closer to the end, it was getting more and more exciting. And it was, it was right, okay, we could be in for a result here. We need to start thinking about managing other areas of the car to make sure we're not, we're not pushing it too far. But yeah, it was, a, it was a great feeling. I don't think any of us really knew what was really going to happen in the, in the months ahead. We were sort of, at that stage, we were very much hand-to-mouth operating. And it took a huge skill and effort as far as managing budgets to get us to that point. Even to race in Baku was, was a huge achievement. And, and understanding that we had next to no money and a lot of the car that we were racing with had to be carried over from the year before, which had to be carried over from the year before that. So there was a huge amount that, that we couldn't really do to the car as far as development was concerned. But but we knew we had a, an opportunity to come back with a good result there. And, and yeah, I think Checo and the team nailed it, really. Would you say that was one of the most satisfying races of your career? I, I think looking back, yes. Given the circumstances we were in, because we shouldn't really have been racing. 
we were dead in the water. We, there was, there was, we were struggling to pay. Like you say, we couldn't even fill the printer machines pepper at, at one point. So it was, but that was a philosophy that we took at the time that we said, look, we've got to spend our money wisely and spending it wisely means that we spend it on the car and going racing. And if we can get away without things like paper in the copier or, you know, cutting the grass outside the factory and because it, it looked like a, a meadow field at, at one <laughs> um, that, that we would do that and we would say look th- th- we're not in it to look pretty we're, we're in it to go racing and and that that focus and everyone bought into it everyone realized that the, the pain that they, we were seeing because of the the lack of money we all knew that we weren't wasting a penny we weren't wasting a penny every almost every day we sat down and, and revised what we were going to spend, the limited amount of money we had, what we were going to spend it on. And that was, that was a daily, daily occurrence. It was, it was hard work. It was really hard work. It was not what I expected to be doing as a technical director at that point in your, your career. You, you think you, you're more focused on the car and, the, and, and getting the best out of the car and, and moving it technically in the right direction. Yes, you're doing all that, but the constraints, the financial constraints were just monumental. They, they took over our our working day did it ever get to the point where you had to tell the drivers guys we really can't afford to bend this nine tenths please every every time every time they (laughs) every time they stepped into the car that when it wasn't qualifying and qualifying we said yeah this is this is what we're here for you 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 go do it um but every other session from from day one of winter testing it was even before day one. They, it was hammered home to them prior to going testing. This is the only car you've got. You break it, you're not racing. It was tough on them, tough because they need to explore the absolute limits of the car prior to going, going into qualifying. And we were we were definitely holding them back in that that respect. But they got used to it, and they they, they knew what was needed of them. We knew that there was a, always a, a chunk of time between practice and, and qualifying just in the drivers moving from nine tenths to, to ten tenths. It was all we always had that in our pocket. It was nice to have, but it was also really difficult to manage because once you start turning the car up like that and start driving it harder, it changes. The characteristic of the car changes. The tires change completely. So we had to anticipate that and we got we got skilled in, in anticipating what the car was going to do on a Saturday afternoon given that we were driving around at nine tenths every other session. So yeah, it was it was part of they were part of the of the whole whole equation. Do you think Checo's underrated? Mm. Yeah, I, I do. I think he's massively underrated. I think he's absolutely at the peak of his career now. He's not phased by anything. His his feedback has always been amazing. His his mental capacity to drive the car and feedback on what the car's doing and on the Sunday afternoon the race around him is for me he's, he's one of the best his tire management is I think he's, he's in the top two or three on the grid I think there's 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 not many who can do better I think there's there's some who can probably match him but he just has that feeling he just has that feeling as he, as he goes into the corner that what the, what the tire is doing what it needs what he needs out of it his slip control on the throttle coming out of the corners is just remarkable. It's it's like he's got built-in traction control. He's, it's, <laughs> he is he's, 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 I think he's, he's I think he's incredibly underrated. I think 
I think he he understands himself that his his weakness is a Saturday afternoon qualifying. But I think part of that is driven by the fact that he likes to set the car up for his driving style on a Sunday afternoon. And sometimes that isn't always the quickest way to set your car up on a Saturday afternoon. But he's absolutely insistent, this is the way I want it. And I think time and time again, he's proven to be right. Occasionally, we, he, he overdoes it and we end up poor on Saturday and Sunday. But it's very rare, very rare. He, he likes a certain setup in the car. He likes a certain balance. And sometimes it's really difficult to extract the best out of the car on a Saturday with that type of balance. Now, can I ask you a little bit more about the administration? I, I don't want to bring back all these bad memories. I hope it's cathartic rather than... It is now, looking back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> during that administration period, maybe the whole of 2018, how, how difficult was it for you to retain good people? It was... We were anticipated it being a real problem. We'd identified it as, as an essential requirement that we had to come out of administration with the same people that we went in. So we were concerned, but with, I think we had such a, such a great team, and we still do have such a great team, who really believed in what we were doing and what we said. We, they knew that when the management got up in front of them and told them what was happening, it was the truth. There was no pulling punches. There was no BS. It was, this is what's happening, guys. This is what we're going to do. Yes, there's a huge element of risk here, and it could all go pear-shaped, but if you stay with us, we'll make sure you're good at the end of it. And I don't think we lost anybody during that time. They all stood up and said, yeah, we're, we're part of this team. If it carries on, great. And if it sinks, we sink with it. And, and they, all, they all had that attitude. They'd all seen it building in the, in the months leading up to going into administration. We, and we'd, we'd sort of hinted at them what the timing was going to be, and what, what the timing had to be for it to work. So they were sort of prepared. It's still a shock when it happens because there's not many teams who've gone into administration and come out the other side. Um, so many of them go in and, and never come out. So we, we were doing something that um, hadn't been done for a long time, but uh, they had the belief. I think we, we proved them right. How disappointed were you in Vijay Malia that it had come to this? I, I have the absolute utmost respect for Vijay. I like him personally and uh, his passion for the team was was incredible. He He absolutely lived and breathed the Force India Formula 1 team. He absolutely loved it. And I was absolutely gutted for him when it was taken away from him. But there was no choice. There was absolutely no choice. He was was closing in around him. There was nothing he could do about it. Unfortunately, we were were caught in the middle of it. And I I think he... He, he understood we had to we had to get out. We had to find a, an exit route. We couldn't go down that road. We had to jump. And fr- I was never never frustrated with VJ. He was he was always honest with us, telling us what the situation was and how difficult it was for him. And and we in, without that honesty, we would have never been able to do what we did, because it would have all come as a big as a big shock and we'd have just fallen off the edge of a cliff. As it was, we could plan to exit. So I think uh, yeah. I have no gripes with Vijay at all, the absolute opposite. I have the utmost admiration for him for what he did for us and the team was just, just incredible. If you look back at where he brought the team from and where, where he exited from, amazing, absolutely amazing. So how has the arrival of Lawrence Stroll altered your horizons? Well, now we have a horizon. Before, <laughs> before we were looking you know, over the edge of a cliff. So now we have a we have a very bright horizon, and and it's um, 
he said he had a huge ambition for the team when he took over. We, we didn't really know what huge ambition meant at the time, but he, he secured the future at that point in time. We thought, great. We had no idea, really, what was coming around the corner, but he kept hinting at it. He said, look, you know, this is just... This is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. Just wait to see the plans I've got for the team and what we're going to do going forward. And when it started to emerge that uh, the whole Aston Martin link-up was, was his end goal, the excitement that rippled through the company was just incredible. It was just spine-tinglingly good. It was, it was from where we were, which is the point of everyone locking up and going home and finding new jobs, to all of a sudden we were on the verge of becoming the Aston Martin works team. You, you couldn't write it. You, you, if, you, if, you, if you wrote it, you wouldn't believe it. So it's completely changed the way we think. It hasn't really changed the way we operate at the moment because we've always focused on being the most efficient team on the grid and we will continue to focus on being the most efficient team on the grid. And I think now that the, with the introduction of the cost cap, I think that really does help us. But the change to Aston Martin for next year is going to be massive is going to be a monumental change for the team. And I don't think we're really, we haven't really turned around and focused on that because of what's been happening the last couple of months. But it is going to be a tidal wave of change. It's going to wash over the team. Well, from a marketing point of view, I can see that. No, but from, from, from the whole team attitude and the way we work and the way we operate, we, we're now a shop window for Aston Martin. So we have to act and work that way and that's going to be that's going to be a big challenge to be able to do that and still maintain the efficiency that we strive for so and that's one of the big challenges that we're going to have for when we get back to work next month and do you have a wish list a technical wish list that you're, you've sort of handed over to Lawrence and said right this is what we need I mean there was the switch to the Merc the Mercedes wind tunnel but is there a whole bunch of other stuff that, that you've said, this is what we need. Yeah, it was one of the first discussions that, that we had. So we said, what, what do you need? What should we be doing? With, with a view to, to not becoming one of these big monster Formula One teams to try and maintain the efficiency and the size that we we're currently at, which we really felt was a proper sweet spot as far as a, a team size is concerned. And we didn't want to suddenly expand from 450 people to 800, 900 people. That was never on the wish list. The wish list was right, okay, with what we've got, how do we improve what we've got? How do we, keep, how do we go in the direction that we've been going, but do it faster? How can we shortcut, and this is one of the big discussions that we had, how do we shortcut reducing the gap to those top three teams? We've seen it year after year after year that there's top three teams just completely outperform the rest of the grid. And it's... It's not rocket science. It's just it's physics. So how do we go about shortcutting that? And that's when we, we the discussions with Mercedes, we'd have been having discussions with Mercedes for a very long time for using their wind tunnel. It wasn't really until Lawrence turned up and the regulations started to allow it, but for sure, Lawrence turning up and adding that additional lever to allow Mercedes to open up to us. Um, as far as the wind tunnel is concerned, that was a big, big change. Do you think in due course, though, you'd need to become that 800 people in order to win Grand Prix? I, I think if you'd have asked that question a year or so ago, you'd have said yes, but not now. Not in the current climate and not with the, 
with the regulations that are, that are coming in starting in 2022. I think those teams now are dinosaurs and you've got to be small, lean, efficient. And I think that's, that's our strength. I think as far as uh, the financial side of the regulations are concerned, I think they're coming to us. I think they're, they're definitely going to, to allow us to be able to compete with what used to be big teams because they can't be big teams anymore. They're going to have to come back down, get much closer to our level. And we've been doing it for years. We've been at this level for a very long time. And I think, I think we do a reasonable job at it. But it would, by no means I'm saying we're doing the best or couldn't do better. Of course we could. But we have been doing it a long time. And I think we have put systems in place and groups in place who know how to work in a cost-driven environment. And I think that's going to that's gonna help us. So I think a few years ago, yes, I'd have been turned around to Lawrence and say, right, okay, new factory, 900 people. Right, we need to be able to do this, this, and this. Our own wind tunnel, come on, let's, let's, we need to bring it on. We need to be doing all of this if we're ever going to compete. And that's not the case anymore. No, it's not the case. Ah, but, but you've still got the shiny new factory on the way. But it's, yeah, well, that, that's still happening, but it, it's still, it's, we're still not planning to fill it with 900 people. It's a different strategy, the factory. It's taking the manufacturing aspect that has always been outside of our control because we're, we're being such a small team, um, we do have to outsource a huge amount of manufacturing and starting to bring some of that in-house so we can, we can shorten the, the lead time. So I think that's a big part of the new factory isn't isn't to have this a huge increase in headcount. It's it's to improve our efficiency even further. So I think and I think with a blank sheet of paper, knowing what the rules are now and how we need to operate, we're in absolute ideal position to design ourselves a factory that is absolutely custom built and designed for the new era of Formula One. Perfect time to be doing it. Are you involved in the sort of layout of the factory? You need that bit of I don't know design next to that bit of design are you getting involved in all that I try to keep out of it I, I, I've been involved at the very top level I made a, a decision right at the very beginning that I didn't want this to distract myself or the technical team at all and it has to be as remote as possible hence the desire to not refurbish the current factory and have something that's completely off-site so all the building work is, is off-site, so it doesn't impact the current workforce at all, with a view to just one day, instead of turning up at the old factory, you just turn right and you go into the new factory and you walk up to your new desk and you carry on again. That was the desire, and that's our ambition, is to, is to absolutely minimise the impact on the technical team, because that will otherwise it will impact on the performance of the car. We cannot let a new factory impact on the performance of the car. Can you sort the car park out as well, please? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We started with a car park and then we designed the factory. (laughs) Everything you've just said, Andrew, makes me think that the DNA of Racing Point is actually very similar to Jordan all those years ago. Can you see the similarities between... Oh, oh, massively. Massively from, well, one, it's, it's obviously we're under the same roof. Quite literally, it is the same roof. Um, we've expanded internally with mezzanines, but it still has that. It's, it's a bit of a rabbit warren. I know you, you, if you've ever been there. Um, but it's it has that Jordan feel about it. Um, you can still see remnants of, of the, the Jordan days 
as you walk around the factory, you always always will be able to. We're proud of of that heritage, and and there are and there are still people there that were there in day one. Back when we started back in 1990, there's still a handful of us who were who were still there, have been walking in the same door since 1990. So amazing. Yes, it's and that that mentality of working to a budget with the, with the smallest possible amount of people is still is still there. Can I ask you about those early days at Jordan and specifically the 191, that first car that you took racing in, in 1991? Such a gorgeous looking car. Is it the most beautiful car that you've ever worked on? Yes, I think so. I think it's, it turned out to be iconic Formula One car. And uh, we had a fantastic season for a first season. I think it was, it was, we were just racing on pure adrenaline for the, for the whole of that year. It was an incredible experience. The car penned by Gary Anderson was performance-wise was was amazing. I don't think we really knew what we designed until we started racing it. It was definitely very easy on its tyres. That was something that uh, we, we put in right at the very beginning to make sure that we could again race on a Sunday afternoon and and, and race strongly on Sunday, even if the Saturday was slightly compromised. We still see that today, and that was the case back in in 1991. That was a big part of it. I think there was a there was an aspect of aeroelastics, should we say, that were a feature of that car. That, given the time when there were no regulations forbidding aeroelastics, I think we we found a neat way of generating downforce that uh, really did upset a lot of people. Can you put more flesh on the bone of that? What What do you mean by the aeroelastics? Well, that? I think we, we think we found, and we didn't really realise it at the time, but we realised very soon after we started racing and putting new parts on the car, is when we got to put new parts on the car, that actually the diffuser on that car was a series of two tunnels. It was two semicircular shaped tunnels. And they had a, a tendency to flex and they would they were basically bending at the edges and being, as the diffuser was being sucked down, the edges were being sucked down and they used to, scr- they used to run along the tarmac. Um, so we had to put wear blocks around the outside of the diffuser to stop it from all wearing out. Um, and those, those wear blocks were wooden. They were uh, jabrock type wood. And the drivers in the, the cars behind were always complaining that when they were following uh, the Jordan, it smelt of burning wood because we, that's exactly what we were doing. And we didn't realize until... Until, we, until we'd, we'd run a floor for a very long time on the car in testing, and it had become quite old and, and, and weak. And we didn't realise at the time, but the older and weaker it got, the faster and faster the car was going. And it wasn't until we put a brand new one on, and then it just didn't have the same performance. It was miles away. And Gary realised that actually what he needed to do when we put a new floor on is stand and jump up on the side of the diffuser and break it. <laughs> So uh, part of the uh, the sign off of a of a new floor was Gary jumping up and down on the <laughs> to to make sure that it was pretty well broken before sending it out, and uh, that was that was a bit of a eureka moment. Oh my god, that's what a what a brilliant story! Yeah. Now look, there's a couple of races I wanted to ask you about in '91 as well. First of all, Canada. You got both guys, Andrea de Cesaris and Bertrand Gasho, into the points. Huge moment for the team, I guess. Yeah, it, it, it was, and that was that was tears in the eyes when 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 that happened. Um, again, it was just it was a, a function of the car being really kind on its tires, 
on a, on a Sunday afternoon and the drivers being able to push and they could push and they could push and push all afternoon. And I, I think that there's a few of the competitors fell by the wayside, but yes, it was, it was an incredibly emotional race for us. And I think every time any of us who were involved with that return to Montreal, our thoughts always go back to that weekend and how it was a, it was a, a massive moment for the team. So yeah, it was uh, obviously it, at the time it was, it was the, the, the most memorable race by a long way. But the whole weekend there was, we used to have um, before the race, we used to have uh, raft races across the lake. So each team would come along and, and build a raft out of the bits that they had in the back of the paddock. And on a Thursday afternoon, we'd race them back and forth. And this was our first one. So we had one of the, the, the technicians had, had been working on it back at the factory. So we, we, we'd already been working on the design of the raft before it even got to Canada. And we won that as well on the Thursday. As first attempt, we thought, that's a good omen. That's a good omen. We're gonna, this, this, this could go really well for us. And the, and the nature of the track, which is which for Canada, is really hard on the rear tyres. And we knew we had a car that was really easy on the rear tyres. It was, was going to be good on the Sunday afternoon. And both drivers did a fantastic job. And when they, when, they both, when they both crossed the line, it was, yeah, incredibly emotional for everybody involved. Now, you've had some flamboyant bosses in your time, VJ, for example, but Eddie Jordan, he was a bit different. What was he like as a boss? Well, at the time, he was, he was only my second boss at the time. And um, so I didn't really know whether that was normal. <laughs> so, and uh, he was... Yeah, incredibly flamboyant. And the, the times I remember with fondness are the times at the end of the year when you'd have to go in and renegotiate your salary for the following year. So everyone was going in wanting to get their few percent pay rise for the year after and putting down a good case for what, why they should be paid this. And we, everybody had to do that with EJ. There was no middle management line. Everybody negotiated their salary with EJ. And we found quite, it became quite apparent that if you came out of that meeting with Eddie with the same salary that you went in, you did a really good job because, <laughs> because most times you walked out with a percentage reduction, but he made you feel really good about it. <laughs> <laughs> so those, those, those were fun times. And there was always, there was always a lot of um, payments being made quite literally out of um, brown paper bags. So there was, a, there, was a, there was a bit of that going on as well. It was always... But he was incredibly passionate. Um, um, technically, he allowed us to do what we wanted to do. He brought us in as a, as a technical gurus, and he let us do what we needed to do. We weren't involved in any of the, the, the finances, and he wasn't involved in any of the any of the technical side. So, in that respect, he was amazing, and his his passion for the for the sport was was incredible. Lovely guy, and incredibly funny. And he still is to this day. Whenever, whenever we, we get together, he's, he can always tell a story and, and bring tears to your eyes with laughter. So, yes, he was a very, very unique boss, as I found out as I moved, my, as my career moved on, that there, was, there are no, there is another Eddie Jordan. There's just the one. And so the other race I wanted to ask you about was Spa 1991. And of course, the, the debut of the great Michael Schumacher. Yes. The sensation of Spa has been Germany's 22-year-old Michael Schumacher, who's substituting for Bertrand Gachot in the Jordan Ford team. 
Before Belgium, Schumacher had never driven a Formula One car on a full Grand Prix circuit. But today, he starts seventh on the grid. An incredible achievement. You must be very happy with your results. Yeah, sure, I'm really happy. With this car, you can do with this qualifying time. You know, the car feels really good and uh, it's a lot of fun to drive. When you started this weekend, did you ever think that uh, you would draw so much publicity as you are drawing now? No, I don't think so. But it's nice though, isn't it? Yeah, sure, it's nice. But it, it... Were you there when he actually tested the car for the first time at Silverstone? Yeah, so I was his data engineer at the time, as well as designing all the suspension and going wind tunnel testing. It was also the data engineer. Um, that's That was the nature of the team. We all have multiple hats to wear for whatever we're doing. So yes, we went to the Silverstone South Circuit across the road from the factory on the summer of 91. Mr. Gasho had found himself on the wrong end of the law. And uh, Eddie had said, right, we're, we're, we're testing this Michael Schumacher guy. He's going to be racing for us in, in Spa. None of us really knew much about him. We didn't have Google then to, to try and work out what he'd done. So it was all word of mouth, what he'd, what he'd achieved and previously. And uh, yeah, I think Trevor Foster was uh, his, his engineer at the time. Got in the car, started his opening laps at Silverstone South. And you could see straight away that he was, he was getting on it. You know, he wasn't pussyfooting around. He was, he was really, really motoring. And in front of us, there was quite a big braking zone. And it was only two or three laps in and the whole, everything was, all the brakes were lit up and you could see he was really pushing hard. And, and uh, the irony was, Trevor brought him in after, after his first run. He said, he said, yeah, I know, I know you're new to this. You, you should probably slow down a bit, he said. <laughs> Don't 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 push don't don't push too hard too soon, and 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 Michael just looked at him. It's like Fabregas says, I'm I'm not pushing yet. This is not me pushing. This is me understanding the car. And he said, okay. So and Travis said, so so what do you understand about the car? And Michael just reeled off the characteristic of the car, like we'd heard from all the from the drivers in the previous races, down to the minute detail of what the car was doing, when, how it, how it could be used, not even just what the characteristic was, but how it could be used in a race and how we should be setting the car up for the, for the race to be able to help this or change that. And we were just, we, we, were, we were completely gobsmacked. We'd never heard anyone. We'd never, we'd never witnessed someone sit in a car for the very first time and be able to tell us exactly what the car was doing and how we should set it up. And that was within about... In my mind, I've got five or six laps. And he knew exactly what the car was doing. And were his comments consistent with what De Cesaris and Gasho had been telling you? Completely. They're completely overlaid. Completely overlaid. And they've been racing it for, for half a season. And he did it in six laps. And we knew, yeah, this guy's, this guy's quite, obviously quite talented. Yeah, obviously quite talented. Then we got to Spa. And then the, the talent was just obvious. You know, with his first laps out, he was just absolutely flying and uh andrea was at the time was he was caught off guard he was not expecting a teammate to rock up and absolutely show him how to drive it but to his credit andrea just put his head down and went to school on it he just absolutely was all over michael's data from the very first time from the first time he realized that michael was just so quick he was all over it and he clawed his way back to be you know on, on a par with michael at that, that weekend but yeah, he was stunningly quick. I think if it hadn't been for the, there are a few issues that we had, unfortunately, um, for that uh, for that race. Obviously, Michael 
lack of experience on starts, which is something you just couldn't practice, caught him out. So unfortunately, he burnt the clutch out of the start. But the car was never going to finish anyway, unfortunately. The, the, the engine had had a, a modification done to it. We didn't realise the time before, and it was burning too much oil. So there was not enough oil in the tank for the to finish the race anyway. But Andrea showed what the car was sort of capable of doing um, for his time that he was racing. It was really... He was gonna. He was on for a phenomenal result. He was absolutely on for a phenomenal result, but uh, it was never to be. Were you one of the guys wearing one of the Gasho T-shirts? I think there was Gasho Y, and there was another one saying "God save." What was it? "God save the British and Gasho." I think was another T-shirt. <laughs> Did you guys wear those, or were you even at that point thinking, "Hang on a minute, we'd quite like to hold on to this guy." Um. I think it, it dawned on us quite quickly we were going to struggle to hold on to this guy. It, it, it was became apparent this this guy was destined for something great. If if he drove with us for the rest of the season, that would have been amazing. I don't recall the t-shirt side of it. I can remember all the graffiti sprayed on the track, and but uh, yeah, I, I can't remember which t-shirt we were at the time. Do you think a podium would have been on with Michael had he finished the season in the car? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, uh, I think at Spa, ifs, buts, maybes, he was looking at one of the upper steps of the podium. That was, uh, yeah, we would, I would have put money on him, yeah. Is he the best driver you've ever worked with? Um, for, for sheer natural talent and ability, my experience with him was, was just the one race, and it still stays with me now. I, I don't have any, any other races to, to, to compare it against, but at the time, yes. Uh, an ability that I've never, I've never witnessed before. But saying that, I've you know, worked with some incredibly talented drivers since then, and so. But I, I struggle to, to be able to do the comparison because the, uh, the sample size is, is so small. Can I just get your thoughts very briefly on some of those drivers? You know, Barrichello, for example, Rubens Barrichello. Yeah, um, lovely guy, super talented. Yeah, he was. I don't think he had to work hard at it. It wasn't easy for him. He was always going to school on the data. He, he, he definitely had to, had to work at it. He, had, he obviously had the talent. Um, he had the grit, determination. And yeah, he was, I, I don't think as far as natural ability, he definitely had to work on it, but he, he got there. He definitely got there. Eddie Irvine? Eddie, one of the completely, one of the unsung heroes, I think, because there's someone who is supernaturally talented who didn't really come to the sport until really late in his career and was, yeah, in, in, the, in the same sort of league as, as, as Michael, just complete natural talent. But I think where Michael had him was, was not Tom, was outside of the car. I think in, in the car, I think that the two of them were, were, were very comparable. Uh, but I think that Michael had the mental ability to be able to do more gymnastics mental gymnastics inside the car than than eddie could i think eddie when we were working with him super quick and you'd make adjustments to the car and he'd go you know a few tenths quicker and, and you'd ask him why and sometimes he would struggle <laughs> to give you the answer he would just say i'm just driving it as fast as it'll go you know you, so that so i think he michael had the ability to sort of almost step out of the cockpit while he was driving it and understand what was going on around him. Whereas I think Eddie was a, a little bit more using up a little bit more of his brain power to, to drive it, but still driving it incredibly, incredibly quickly, incredibly quickly. 
What about Nico Hulkenberg? Mm. He's a guy who fascinates me in that Barrichello, funnily enough, has always told me how quick Nico Hulkenberg is. And he got the pole position at Williams. And yet it's never quite happened for him. Yeah. And I I think it's just incredibly talented driver and so quick on a Saturday afternoon. His car control on on the limit on the Saturday afternoon is right up there with with the best I've ever seen. I, I think where Nico struggled to start with, and we worked with him a lot on this, was, and he worked with Checo a lot, was understanding what the tyres needed. So on a Sunday afternoon, what, what, how do you, how do you, can't, you can't do a Sunday afternoon of qualifying laps. The tyres just can't take it. And so how do, you, how do you manage that and get the best out of them? Um, I think that was, that was something we identified with, with Nico early on, and he worked really hard at it and, 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 and made huge progress huge progress to the point where you know they, I think between Checo and Nico there was there wasn't that much difference on a Sunday afternoon um, I think Nico was 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 very was still had the edge on a Saturday afternoon but Checo always used to think that it would doesn't really matter where Nico's going to qualify I'll, I'll still I'll still get him on a Sunday afternoon there was a bit of that going on but yeah I, and I think obviously the the longer it went on with Nico the the, the harder it became and I think to that that result eluding him started to put more and more pressure on him and I think I think we saw that in the wet in Hockenheim last year that time where yeah. you, I think that was that really was his moment do you think is he one of those drivers who had it happened years ago the floodgates might have opened and goodness knows what he might have achieved yeah I, I yeah I, I, I do yeah but there's one other guy um Jacques Villeneuve because you, you did a stint at British American racing. Yeah. There's a couple of things I would love to ask you about British American racing, but let's start with the, the, the lead driver, if you like, Jacques. First of all, on track, how impressive? Oh, he could, he could ring a lap out of a car that you just, you couldn't, you couldn't believe that he could, he could do what he could do um, with the car that, the car that he had. He was uh, another, obviously super, super talented, su- super quick. Yeah. And I, I think he, Obviously, in the in the first year of BAR, I think his his qualifying performances were were exceptional. Um, he didn't have the car underneath him to deliver on a Sunday afternoon, unfortunately. But um, yeah, he was he was incredible, incredible. I mean, at one stage, I remember him qualifying. I think it was in I think it might have been the first race in Australia. We had um, we had uh, the, the gearbox was just was too weak and um, it was prone to cracking. And I think he finished the qualifying lap. I think he put it quite way up in qualifying. Probably might have even been in the top 10. And we rolled the car back. And the gearbox was almost in half. I mean, the, the, two, the, the front part of the gearbox had almost, almost separated from the rear half of the gearbox. And you're thinking, this guy has just done an incredible lap with a car that's almost in two halves. Yeah, he's, he was pretty special. Andrew, you strike me as such a, a modest man that you working at BAR at that time when the team was claiming it was going to win its first race and all these different things seems that you being a sort of square peg in a round hole was was that the case what was it like to be in a team that was so bullish it was yeah it was quite embarrassing at the time it's not really what we we'd signed up for and uh, I think I was being at the time I was being protected from all the politics but yeah, it was cringeworthy. Some of the some of the statements that, that were coming out, we we as a, from a technical team, we knew what we had to do and how long it was going to take to build the team up to be performant. 
and you just do not say the things that were being said at, at the time. We knew it was it was years to get the team from zero, absolute zero, to where where it needed to be. Um, it wasn't going to happen on on race one or even season one or season two. So it's uh, yeah, it was it was difficult. It put a lot of pressure on the on the team. I think unneeded pressure. And I think because it was such a new team and hadn't gelled, we hadn't gelled together as a team because everybody had come from all different different areas. It was it was impossible to have a, a collective of people that was absolutely right first time round, and it was always going to take time to to find our feet from a technical team perspective. So I think we didn't have the gelling. So I think once the once the pressure started coming from outside, as into what you know why we weren't why we weren't performing to this level that senior management had said we were going to be performing started to show um, and I think that was that was unfortunate because I think we we had the if, we, if we'd have gone about it a completely different way I think we would have we would have had a completely different result I think we would if we'd have started off with a, with a much more humble outlook I think we would have reached a, a higher level quicker but as it was it just piled on pressure and, and, and then you get the inter-team squabbling and politics and it all starts to what you had, you tr- what had, you tried to do to to generate a team was all starting to fall apart around us. So it was it wasn't it wasn't great. Craig Pollock was the was the team principal, I suppose, and obviously he was very tight with Jacques Villeneuve. He he'd managed him for the previous however many years. How comparable was that Pollock Villeneuve axis to the Lawrence Lance Stroll axis that you have now? At Racing Point, are there any parallels? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. I, I think um, it was uh, the, the driver management aspect with Craig and Jack, and then the father son aspect. I think it's completely different. You you, you see that you see the the, the, the father son with Lawrence and, and Lance is is just is, is massive. I mean, the the blood is thicker than water and, and you can see that the, the bond between them is absolutely incredible and everything that Lawrence can do he, he does do for, for the love of his, his son and his family and uh, and that's it's incredible he's incredibly generous with it uh, incredibly generous guy um, so I, I think the the analogy is 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 there in some respect but I think they're, they're quite it's quite distant I think they're, they're they're quite a different dynamic between the between the two. Well, Andrew, it's been the most wonderful chat. Thank you. There's just one last area, really, which is it's all a bit of a moving target uh, in Formula One at the minute. We've touched on that right at the top. But with the new regulations being delayed until 2022, is that a good thing for you guys or a bad thing? I think it uh, it helped us. It, I, I don't think we were quite prepared. We sort of made a decision anyway that we were gonna we were going to try and make this year, 2020, our performant year. And at the cost of 2021 at the time, we were, we were definitely much more biased towards 2020. We know another te- lots of other teams had sent their bias a lot more towards the 2021 regulations. We made a decision not to do that. And that was a, that was a, a joint decision from the management that uh, we wanted to show what we were capable of doing. And with a view to well, we can catch up in the 2021 regulations. We can just be fast followers, and, and we'll, we'll go that route. So I think the, the the moving out a year is great. It helps us for the new regulations. The, the big risk for us was 
well, we've gone with a new concept car for 2020. If it doesn't work, our view was if it doesn't work, well, then we're moving over to 2021 regulations anyway. So now we're in a situation where the car that we thought may only be good for one season has now got to do two. So that's going to be an interesting, it's going to be interesting when we we go racing to see exactly how it performs. What about this year's car? What did you see in testing? Well, it, it matched what we were expecting as far as performance was concerned. I think the drivers were incredibly enthusiastic about it, um, which is great. But you're only ever as quick as the competition will allow you to be. And we have no view yet on, on, on our competition. But we know we've, we've made a, a reasonable step from last year. But what step has everybody else taken, we don't really know. We're looking forward to the season when it starts. As long as we um, get, to, get to show our hand at multiple tracks and we don't just stay at one track or two tracks for the whole season then I think we'll be we'll be fine but uh yeah it's going to be it's going to be interesting uh, we definitely rolled the dice for this year with a view to if it didn't work then we're changing regulations but I hope we're not too far away that's our that's our hope well look best of luck let's hope we get racing very soon I think it's yeah. Austria July the 5th isn't it yeah Andrew thank you very much for your time what a great chat pleasure thank you very much see you Thanks, Andrew. What a wonderful chat. And on the evidence of pre-season testing, you're not going to be too far away when we get racing again. It's hard to pick a favourite moment of that conversation. Perhaps it's his description of negotiating his salary with Eddie Jordan, or testing Michael Schumacher for the first time in 1991. Or maybe it's Gary Anderson jumping up and down on the new Jordan diffusers to induce a bit of flex. Many thanks for your time, Andrew. It was great to catch up. And thanks to to Racing Point for helping to make this podcast happen. Well, that's it for this episode. But before we go, I'll have a quick dig in our virtual mailbag and read out some of your comments about last week's show with Sterling Moss, Mr. Motor Racing himself. I'm not old enough to remember watching him, says Tim Marshall. But the tales about Sir Sterling Moss are legendary. I smiled all the way through this. What a superb role model and racing icon. Thanks. Yes to all of the above, Tim. He was exactly that, a superb role model. And here's another. What a brave man this legend was, says Andrew Tainton. The tale of him racing at 180 miles an hour while Jenks was reading off the toilet roll made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Maybe not a world champion, but certainly the people's champion. Yet another great podcast. Keep it flat out. Well, what a lovely phrase about Sterling being the people's champion. Thanks for that, Andrew. We had many similar messages. And remember, if you want to drop me a message about the show, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. And don't forget, we also love reading your reviews on all of the usual podcast apps. It really cheers us to see the great community we've built with this show. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back in just seven sleeps with another can't miss show. As ever, Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.